Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author Sam Baker. My guest today is the Ghanaian-American writer Nana Amadankwa. Nana Amma found herself in the public eye when, in the late 1990s, she published her memoir, Willow Weep for Me, about suffering from clinical depression. It was one of the first books to openly discuss black women's mental health experience and was critically acclaimed by the likes of the late, great Maya Angelou. I said, I think I'm dying. I think I've got some illness, and I think that they're going to find out what the illness is. But I think I'm dying. And she said, well, what's wrong with you? So I listed a bunch of things, and she says, girl, that's menopause. (laughs) (laughs) Now 53, Nana Amma joined me from her home in sunny California to talk about the triple burden of mental health, menopause, and being black why black women are driving change right now, how menopause turns her into a hot mess, and how she's finally learned to do what's right for her. It looks lovely and bright there. Mm, All the windows are open. Where are you? You in California? I'm in my living room in uh, the Coachella Valley in California. Lovely. (laughs) What's the temperature just to make us feel really bad? You know, right now it's probably in the 50s. I mean, it's going to go up to the 70s, but it gets really cold because it's the desert. So, well, it's so lovely to see you after several months of stalking you on Instagram, (laughs) following your T-shirts with uh, interest. Ah, I should tell the listeners that Nana Ama does some posts. Uh, several times a week, sometimes, T-shirt posts. Right now, whenever I feel like it. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's fairly regular. You know, I started out a few years ago, and maybe this was the beginning of my menopause. <laughs> I don't know. I started out a few years ago kind of not really interested in um, engaging. My T-shirts became a very passive-aggressive way of me sending a message. 
<laughs> well, it's kind of it's quite a good way around it as well, isn't it? It's, you know. Sometimes, you know, I did feel like engaging. So the T-shirts would bring people like I know I have a T-shirt that says, um, you know, I was there and everybody was Kung Fu. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you get them all? They're so brilliant. I get them in different places. And then, you know, friends who really know me, and I have to stress that really know me, send me some that are brilliant. You know, friends that I went to grade school with that I'm still friends with, they know me really well. They know my humor. And so they'll sometimes see something and get it. And that's nice. Do you have a personal favorite t-shirt? No. Each one means something to me. This one, which you'll read online later, is, you know, the Wizard of Oz, a reminder of the fact that these people who thought they were lost and thought they were somehow deficient went on this journey in search of someone to fix them, to make them whole. And it was a con man. (laughs) It was a man, you know, some old guy behind like a velvet... (laughs) like a velvet curtain. And, you know, the reality of it is that the answer is within you and that you have what you think you're missing. It's probably the perfect T-shirt for every day this year, actually. <laughs> These days we're missing so much in, in our minds. You know, in reality, we, we can survive. And, you know, the Tin Man had a heart. <laughs> <You know? laughs> And so sometimes it's just that it's not, it's not what we're taught a heart looks like. Exactly. But it does the same job as a heart. I mean, that's a lot of the source of the damage, isn't it? That we have an expectation that we're taught from a very young age of the way things should be. Yeah. Yeah. And then when they don't live up to that for whatever reason, it becomes a problem instead of just a different path. Yeah. I think that starts really early on with questions to children like, who are you going to marry? (laughs) (laughs) When my daughter was in, um, she wasn't even in the first grade yet. She was in a little program at the YMCA in Brooklyn, where I was subletting for the summer. And I get a phone call from the teacher. She's up in arms and I've got to come get my kid. And you know, she's caused quite a stir. And they were going around asking these children who they wanted to marry. <laughs> and my daughter said, well, I would like to marry Michael Jackson unless I learn that I'm a lesbian and then I'll lie like Janet Jackson. <laughs> Oh, that's my girl. All the, all the kids were like, what's a lesbian? <laughs> and so the teacher was like, she shut it down right there. And I thought, why are you asking kids who aren't even six? Why are you sexualizing children? But you can imagine all those five-year-olds going home and going, mommy, what's a lesbian? It's like, <laughs> no, I'm so happy. I was such a proud parent that day. You must be. (laughs) Before we start talking about menopause, which I know that we could talk about for hours, um, I want to talk a bit about your wonderful book, which I've I've just finished reading, Willow Weep for Me. It was published in 1998 when you were 31, which must be roughly how old your daughter is now, is it? Yeah, she'll be 30 in April. It ends up being such a groundbreaking book. What was your kind of path to writing it? Oh, like most people, it was a very... (laughs) It was a very stumbly, circuitous path. I didn't set out to write it. I happened to write it. I was a poet. I wasn't even a prose writer. I was a poet. 
And I did a reading and a man came up to me and said, hi, you know, I work with the Washington Post. And he's like, I really like your poetry. Do you write prose? And I said, yes. Why, yes, I do. When in fact, it was like, why, no, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I do now. (laughs) And so he gave me his card. He assigned me a couple of articles, which I thought, how hard can this be? He wanted it very poetic. So I wrote. He enjoyed the article, assigned me another. And then we became friendly, as one does with one's editor. And uh, he came out to L.A. I happened to be in D.C. when I met him. He came out to L.A. because he was dating a woman in L.A. at the time. And I said something about long distance dating and, you know, he must have one heck of a phone sex bill or something. (laughs) And then he said, yeah, the phone sex thing. And I said, you know, I was a phone sex operator. And he says, what? And I said, I was a phone sex operator. And this was before, (laughs) you know, It was in the movies. I mean, this was like in 90, 93, 94. It hadn't really been something that people were talking about. And he said, tell me about that. And I told him all about it. So he said, write about it. And I said, no, my parents live in D.C. He was with the Washington Post. And I said, they read that paper every day. There's no way. He said, the first shock is the hardest and it frees you as a writer. And he was right, though. He said, then you don't worry about like, you know, you get to own your voice. And so I wrote it. And, you know, much to my shock, nobody really gave a damn about anything other than the fact that I was top of the fold in the paper of that section. They didn't freak out or? Only my uncle and my old British uncle who lived in, had retired in Tangier, his paper carried it. And he called me. He says, darling, if you're ever that hard up ask for money, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but other than that, no, nobody really cared. And so then we were talking and I mentioned something about, you know, depression. And he asked if I had read Styron's book, uh, Darkness Visible. And I said, yeah, I've read that book, but that book has so little in common with my life. And I was like, here I am. I'm a desperately broke single mother. And this guy's like writing about losing $10,000 checks because he's so confused. (laughs) And I said, I I wish I had a $10,000 check to lose. And then I said, also, even though Styron is going through all of these emotions, which are very valid emotions, the way in which he is regarded is so different than the way in which I am regarded. Mm. You know, in the midst of all of this, I went to a hospital. I checked myself into a hospital because I couldn't find a therapist. I was in New York. And I couldn't find a therapist. It was the last two weeks of August where every psychiatrist is on vacation. Yeah, they're all on holiday, yeah. Yeah, and everything was closed down. So I went into the hospital and voluntarily checked myself in. And the doctor was this Middle Eastern, no, Mediterranean. He was like very Greek or something. Not that it matters, but he had a definite cultural mindset because he kept saying again and again, and where's the father? Like, where's the father of my child? And that was like such a big thing in his mind. And I could see that it was bringing me down, you know, in an effort to sort of salvage myself. I was giving him all of my, all of my other credentials. And then he said, he said, which wasn't funny then, but it is funny now. So how long have you believed that you've been writing for the Washington Post? <laughs> I'm sorry. 
Oh my God. And I said, believe, I don't believe I, I actually am. And I mean, this was before you could just go on and just Google and poof, you know. Yeah. And yeah. so fortunately, I was able to reach my literary agent, you know. She was incensed. She called the hospital and said, what are you doing? This is an author. She's, I mean, like, how dare you treat her like that? And so that was an interesting experience. <laughs> that was interesting because it just shows race. And I mean, and it goes on and on and on with whether it's just race, whether it's race and single parenting. You know, I've gone to the doctors and you know, just a regular doctor appointment with my daughter and a neighbor who drove us there. And the doctor spoke with the neighbor and I said, hey, I'm the parent. And the doctor, even in including me, would glance my way, but would talk to this white man. And, you know, so I was talking to my editor about that. And he said, you should write about this. And I wrote, I wrote, I wrote, I wrote a lot. And he he killed the piece. <laughs> he said to me, I'm not going to publish this because I don't want this to be one article in a life full of articles that you're writing because you're broke and you're going from check to check. This is a book and I want you to write this book. And I was like, what? That's amazing. And I just, I could not wrap my brain around it. I was like, so you're not going to pay me for the article? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, saying this is a book, write the book. It was like, go climb the Himalayas or something. And um, he actually sent the pages that I'd written to the agent who then contacted me and said, oh, let me show you how to write a book proposal. And I was like, I'm not doing it. Why? Because you didn't think you could or? Because I couldn't afford to. I mean, look, this woman, she went ahead and sent it out without me doing one thing differently. And they contacted her the next day and said, can she come to New York? And I was like, whoa. And I met with like numerous editors in New York which she flew me to New York. I didn't have that money. Met with numerous editors. I thought, oh, this is all cute and everything, but let me get back to my real life. Mm. At the time when they auctioned on the book, I had no gas. I had to microwave water to bathe my daughter. I mean, like I was in dire straits. So people tend to think if you're a writer, writing comes easily. No, Mm. hard, hard work. And sometimes you work that hard in the course of a week to perfect a paragraph. (laughs) You know, I wasn't in the mind frame because you can't be that stressed out about something else. And then sitting around just sort of la-di-da-di-da, you know, at the computer. So it was really incredible. The book sold. My agent immediately sent me, she wired me some money so I could get my utilities back on. And I spent the next couple of years writing about being depressed. (laughs) (laughs) And where was your clinical depression at, at that point when you were writing about it? Were you at some equilibrium with it or were you still in the midst? Um, Both. I mean, it was a long process. (laughs) I mean, I didn't write the book in a night. Mm. That took like four years, five years. So it was a lengthy process. But um, I was mostly well. I was mostly well. And I was mostly on a a good uh, routine. And I will have to say that the lack of financial pressure helped, Mm. you know, because that's a huge stressor. That's the type of stress that keeps your cortisol levels at an all-time high 
and cortisol levels that are that high increase your blood pressure, increase your cholesterol, increase everything that you don't want increased. I didn't have that stress. And so for me, it was just really dealing with all the other things. And I was in therapy. I'm a big believer of therapy. Did it take you a long time to accept therapy? I suppose, how long did it take you to realize that you were depressed and to seek help? A friend of mine told me, looking back, I'd been depressed most of my young adult life. A friend of mine said, you know, I think you're depressed. I was like, I think you're crazy. <laughs> you know? Because for me, I was using it just casually. Oh, I'm so depressed. You know, something goes wrong. Oh, this is depressing. But in terms of clinical depression, I didn't believe myself to be. I accepted it rather quickly. You know, I think when somebody plants a seed, if you're really honest with yourself, you recognize it when it starts to grow, when it starts to sprout. I guess I've always been the kind of person that believes that there's two things, you do or you die. You only have two choices, really. You move forward or you go backward or stand still, which is the same for me as going, going back, you know, but you're not moving forward. And so as difficult as it may seem, you move forward. Therapy was difficult for me initially because culturally, I'm, I'm originally from Ghana, was raised by Ghanaian immigrants in the United States. It's just not part of that culture to sit with someone and to just tell all your business and, <laughs> and, and your family's business. And, you know, our, our societies are so small. Chances are the person you're talking to knows your family. That gets into issues as well. I was really happy to do it. It was great because suddenly these things that felt so major inside of me, when I said it, I thought, this sounds really silly. It didn't seem quite as silly when I was like obsessing about it. <laughs> it didn't seem quite as minor, but sometimes you, you start to make the connections yourself even before the therapist does. So sometimes it's just having that space to speak with somebody who has no dog in the race, you know, mm -hmm. they, they got nothing. They're just a professional and you're talking to them and you're telling them this and this and this and that is going on. Yeah. You don't have to worry about how they're going to react. I think for me, what I realized in therapy is my listening is the most important thing. Listening to what I'm actually saying, you know, the whole, I can't do this or I'm not good enough or I suck, you know, and then you bring it out into the light and you realize it has zero strength and it's not even the truth. And so I think listening is really important. In the book, you relate an anecdote about uh, a white woman at a party, <laughs> but then also go on to talk about what your black friends were saying about depression. Would you mind relating those anecdotes for the, for the listeners? I was at a party with um, a bunch of people and there was a woman there, a little blue haired <laughs> white woman, <laughs> older. She wanted to know what I was writing. And my friend volunteered, oh, a book about depression, about black women and depression. And the woman said, black women and depression. Well, when black women start going on Prozac, you know, the world is falling apart. I was like, what? Later, I thought, well, when Black women are going on Prozac, their whole world has already fallen apart. But in that moment, you're just so 
stunned, you know. It's like, how could somebody say something like that? It's so dumb. So presumably that's to do with, you know, perceived strength. You're meant to be able to cope in a way that white women aren't. I guess. I mean, I don't know. There may be some level of truth to what she's saying. I don't know. Because lately, here in the United States, with the electoral process, Mm. I see that it is Black women that is saving this country's democracy. For sure. For sure. So I wonder, because I think in this country right now, and of course, this is a generalization, white women are very, very heavily aligned with uh, white supremacy because of the men that they're involved with. Yeah. I mean, thank God for Stacey Abrams. Thank God for Stacey Abrams. Absolutely. And the other people who are working with her, you know, I don't doubt the strength that is there for black women. What I am really saddened by is the absence of space for vulnerability for those same women. That's what is more upsetting. It's not what's there. It's what's not there. The fact that self-care and vulnerability aren't things that are taught, aren't things that we are raised to feel entitled to. Well, I hope that's changing. My daughter certainly feels entitled to it. It's more than 20 years since you wrote the book. Have you seen that shift, certainly in your daughter's generation's behavior and their approach to to mental health but also to their rights to the what they will and won't put up with um sometimes i see something that feels like a shift and sometimes it's the same old same old you know sometimes i feel like we're fighting the same battles again and again and again there are times when i feel like we're suddenly in the 60s oh yeah there are definitely times where i feel like we've progressed and we feel entitled yeah yeah it's kind of depressing (laughs) (laughs) you gotta have hope there's always gonna be negativity in the world you gotta have hope i can only imagine how harriet tubman had it i can only imagine how frederick Douglass had it so with all the things that i have at hand i got hope that's true This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. kind of moving on to menopause but one of the things that really struck me a lot of the women that I've spoken to when they spoke to their mothers or in fact their mothers didn't on the whole speak to them about menopause Mm -hmm. did you have any idea from your mother about her experience of menopause or what to expect no I'm estranged from my mother I will say that when she and I were talking, I had mentioned I was in Istanbul and I had, I don't know what I came near or what I ate, but I had a case of anaphylaxis. And I was really fortunate to be in a hotel where they had a hotel doctor, because if not, I would. Mm. It was a bad case. He had to inject me twice before everything just sort of you know, went down. And I think like six months later, my mother said something about carrying an EpiPen. (laughs) And I said, did you say you carry an EpiPen? And she said, yes. You know, when I got to a certain age, suddenly I started having all of these allergies. I had been talking about allergies and, you know, how my body had just suddenly like I couldn't eat certain foods anymore, and I still don't really understand what happened in Istanbul. And and this woman, not once, not once, said, oh, and by the way, (laughs) very characteristic. And I said, well, why didn't you say something? Well, you didn't ask. Most people don't run around asking, do you carry an EpiPen too? (laughs) And so I have adopted some friends who were a little bit older, women who were a little bit older. I did not know even then with the allergies that it was menopause. I just thought, oh, your body as you get older, and I don't necessarily mean as you get older, like menopausal, just as you get older, Mm -hmm. how you might go from 18 to 24 or something that the body changes all through your life. Your body changes. I didn't know at all, at all, at all. I had a partial hysterectomy because of fibroids. Mm -hmm. And after that, I had hot flashes and all kind of weird stuff that happened. It went on for several months and then it was done. And I thought, whew, that's the end of that. How old were you then? Oh, this was like four years ago. I was in my late 40s. I'm I'm 53 now. So you thought you'd just, that was it, a few months and you'd sailed through it. I was wrong. And I was going to all these doctors for different reasons. And I said to one of my girlfriends, and I meant it in all honesty, I said, I think I'm dying. I think I've got some illness and I think that they're going to find out what the illness is, but I think I'm dying. And she said, well, what's wrong with you? So I listed a bunch of things and she says, girl, that's menopause. (laughs) (laughs) So what was on the list? I was forgetful. Mm. I had brain fog and I thought, okay, so it's got to be something that has some kind of Alzheimer's symptoms. I'm like early onset Alzheimer's. And then also my mood, I was depressed, but I wasn't depressed. It wasn't the depression that I know from my youth. And so 
I was going to a psychiatrist who was treating me for depression and for anxiety. But I got to tell you, I've never had anxiety. I mean, it is a very different, it's a different animal, you know? Mm -hmm. And then also body temperature control. It's not just hot flashes. I also get cold flushes, you know, which a lot of people don't get. So a lot of people don't talk about. But I would get hot and some people would go, oh, okay, you're hot flash. And I was like, well, nobody's talking about the cold. I'm dying. <laughs> you know? mm. And so I would get that. And then also I had some balance issues a year and a half ago. I fell. I was like, oh, my God. I was supposed to be speaking at Barnard. And I had like a mouthful of blood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Awful. It was awful. But then there was that. And then I had a lot of gastrointestinal issues that, you know, um, the ENT was like, oh, you have acid reflux. Then I couldn't eat certain things anymore. And I was just a mess. I was falling apart. And then I couldn't sleep. Or I would sleep and I would shoot straight up like a lightning bolt at 4 a.m. Why 4 a.m.? I don't know. And I couldn't go back to sleep. And it got to the point where it was really affecting my quality of life because I can't work if I can't sleep because I, I work with my brain. <laughs> you know, if my brain feels like mush, how do I write a sentence? How do I, you know, or people would call me and I'd be sleeping at 3 p.m. because I, did, I couldn't sleep the night before. And I was just a hot mess. And one of the first things that I did was I got rid of every man who was on my medical team. Did that make a difference? It made a huge difference for me. And then I added a naturopath. Interesting. You know, when I speak about depression, I did use medication when I was depressed when I was younger. I refused to really talk about it at length, but... I believe that everybody has to make a decision that works for them. I am pro everything if it works for you. Yeah, but don't take it because it works for me. Exactly. And also don't not take it because somebody has said, oh, I'm never taking hormone replacement therapy. <sighs> Your body is not their body. Oh, I'm banging my head on the table. Honestly, the amount of times that I've heard all of the stuff that you're saying, the stuff about not recognizing the symptoms because everybody's just like, oh, menopause, hot flush, move on. People like not taking HRT because some burke on the internet said it's bad, you know, or taking it because someone said they should, you know, it's just astonishing how yeah. screwed up the whole conversation is around menopause. I dealt with a little bit of hair loss, not a lot, um, because castor oil is my friend. <laughs> and I mean, the list is so long and it comes right back to menopause. And some people don't even realize that that's the culprit. For quite a long time. And you, so you were seeing doctors and none of the doctors said it could be menopause. It was a friend who said, you're not dying. It's menopause. Yeah, none of the doctors. None of the doctors. As a matter of fact, you know, thank God I'm a researcher by trade. I found out that 
after the partial hysterectomy, you know, your body works in concert. It's like, you know, what's that song that the ham bones connected to the this bone? Mm, (laughs) You know, your body works like a factory, essentially. And so your ovaries release eggs, and then the eggs end up in your uterine. They're either fertilized or they're not, and then they're released if they're not fertilized. Well, the egg goes... And then the ovary goes, what happened? There's no uterus. What's going on here? (laughs) You know, and so then suddenly it goes, hmm, what to do? And during that moment of, hmm, what to do was when I had the hot flashes and everything. The body is really, really adaptive. Once it figured out, hey, I'm going to do this. Then it went on and did that. And that's when those menopausal symptoms kind of stopped. That didn't mean that I was over it. Two years later, when I started having symptoms, I was like, what? And it was only the naturopath that then said, because I didn't have periods to guide me. I want you to download a period tracker. You will see what's going on. And that's when I realized I was still essentially having periods. So you tracked your symptoms on the period tracker? Ah. I tracked my breast pain. I tracked. It's a really good idea. Yeah. I tracked mood. I tracked everything. You know, my gynecologist, who's great, she gave me estrogen and progesterone, which happily started taking the progesterone first. She said, take one and then wait a couple of weeks and then start the other. Don't do them both at the same time. You know how when you take some medicine the first couple of days, your body's adjusting to it? And Mm -hmm. feel kind of funny. Well, I was like, let me look and see again what what the side effects are. And one of the side effects was viral infection. So I called the doctor and I said, we need to talk. And the more research I did, it's because it depresses the immune system, as many medications do. And it does work and it does work well. And perhaps another time in history, I would have taken it without any thought to that. But in pandemic times, I said to her, that's not going to work for me. So what I did do instead was, you know, I started using a bunch of herbs and, you know, that's where the naturopath really came in and came through. And I also changed my diet because food is medicine. Has that been working for you? Has that improved things? It has improved things when I'm compliant because, you know, I have to say that naturopath, I did everything that she said to do to a T. Three weeks later, I felt the best I have felt in decades almost. And I thought, what kind of witchcraft is this? You know? And I felt so good that I then just decided, well, let me just add a little ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) Let me just have a little steak. (laughs) You know? And as a matter of fact, maybe I don't need to take these pills. Maybe I don't need to be on this schedule, on this ritual with these, like, supplements. And so... I went like buck wild for about a week and then ended up in bed going, oh, feel so good. (laughs) So you've got to stick to it really rigidly. I have to stick to it. And it's not necessarily a terrible, terrible thing. For me, it was, you know, it was a cortisol manager and it was vitamins and a lot of teas, you know, things like that. (laughs) 
I, I like tea, so I drink it in the form of teas. Another part that was really important is that this has to be about me. I've gotten into an attitude where it's not on purpose. It just got to happen, but it's an attitude where it's like, uh-huh. You know, when people call me and it's like, oh, can you do this and the uh-huh. <laughs> is that a new thing? Oh, it's absolutely new. Me, I was like, how can I help? I would do things to my own detriment. I would spend more time doing other people's work than I would my work. And now I'm like, uh, yeah, no. And I don't even feel the need to explain anything. No is no is no. If it's someone that I'm close to, I say, I love you. I hope it works out. <laughs> <laughs> like, grow the fuck up. Do your own thing. <laughs> you know, I don't feel bad. I feel very, very free in terms of just being able to relax, to read, to write, you know, to feel like I've got time to spend an hour walking and, you know, loving myself enough. Because what I've noticed is that a lot of women take better care of their cars and their kitchen. <laughs> than they do of their bodies true, true. in terms of wiping down the car and making sure it's not this, there's no, you know, Oh, there's bird poop on it. I'm going to take the car wash again. Oh, there's this, everything else has to be perfect, but then we're struggling and we're suffering. And we have a lot of resentment and issues for people who really engage in self-care. We say, Oh, look at her every day. She's got her nails done. What does she do? She doesn't do any work. She's this, she's that, you know. I mean, my mom used to say that all the time. She's like, oh, a woman who wears nail polish just doesn't do housework. I was young then and I thought, well, I want to wear nail polish. <laughs> I want somebody else to do the housework for me. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, it's cultural, isn't it? And it's putting other people first, but also, you know, all those expectations around what you should do and how you should behave and who you should be. Were you shocked by the silence and shame and dismissal around menopause when it, you first started to experience it? No. You are expecting it a bit? I wasn't expecting it, but once, once I sort of hit that wall of, you know, no more information for you unless you <laughs> like go digging for it, you know, that's when it kind of turns into, okay, this again, because that's how it was with depression. So I've been through that mm. where people are not talking about being depressed or what depression is and people are drinking silently or, you know, self-medicating in other ways. And now you've got, you know, women who are really struggling and they're struggling silently. Before COVID, I was with some friends and a girlfriend of mine just pulls out this really lovely fan and starts fanning. And I said, you're having a hot flash. Her face was as if I had said something really secret, like, you know, oh, you like to perform fellatio? <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, I had said something like in poor taste. And she goes, no, no, I just, I just, it's just warm in here. And I was like, you look like you got a furnace inside of you. I mean, like, she's like, she sweating and everything. And so I just thought, why can't we have this conversation? Yeah, we're starting to, but it's, 
What do you think it is? Do you think it's that women don't want to admit that they're aging because once they're older, they're sidelined, pushed away? Well, I mean, they're sidelined and pushed away because they say they are. Yes, we have society that does certain things, but everybody's got their role in society. And if you decide I'm not doing this, what can they do? They've got to change. I hope. Well, they can't kill all the old people. (laughs) (laughs) And then also you've always had older women who've been fabulous. And so now you've got more, just the numbers are more. You look at the baby boomers, you look at the Gen Xers, you know, so we're going to have to deal with this. Has your sense of self shifted since perimenopause kicked in? Yes. I was crawled up in a ball and I thought my life was over. (laughs) I started out quite young getting a book deal. I was in my 20s. I got the deal and then I wrote the book. I was ambitious. I was a young girl and I thought I was going to be, you know, I was going to do this. I was going to do this writing. Then I had my daughter and I realized, you know what? I want to do this right. I'll do this and then I'll come back. I did a lot of writing for hire and ghostwriting, which meant that I put my own career on the back burner. Suddenly, I had all of these ideas about what I was going to do once she was done. And then when she was done, I was paralyzed. I had too many things blinding me from too many places. First of all, I had to go through that list, that ever-expanding list of, oh, I'll do this when she's out of the house. Oh, yeah, I'm going to do that when she's out of the house. Oh, I'm definitely going to do that when she's out of the house. And then suddenly I had to sort out the dreams of a 29-year-old to say, well, I kind of really don't want to do this and figure out, well, what are the dreams of a 40-something-year-old, a 50-something-year-old? What are the dreams of who I am now? That was a real process because that involved getting to know myself. You know, this feeling of, can I get back in the game? (laughs) You know, because you've got these like, prizes that are 40 under 40, the Forbes under 30 list. Everything is really geared toward youth. And, you know, they want to publish this new young writer and and that I'd already published and so on and so forth. So then it's like, what do you do? You know, I I read uh, Harriet Doerr, who wrote Stones from Ibarra. She published her first book in her 70s. Toni Morrison published in her 40s. Maya Angelou published in her 40s. You know, you just start to say, all I can do is what I can do where I am. And so I I made peace with that. I made peace with the fact that I can do what I want to do where I am. And I don't have to be dowdy and middle-aged and, oh, I was a writer, you know. And then also I start looking in the same way that when I was young, I looked forward. And I looked at these women who were doing these amazing things. And I thought, I want to do that. Except, of course, I was in my teens, looking then at women in their 20s and and 30s. Now I'm in my 50s. And I'm looking at Ernestine Shepard, who is a bodybuilder at 80 something years old. And she didn't start exercising until she was in her 50s. And you look at this woman and she's like, what? you know, just muscles. I'm looking at uh, Cicely Tyson, who is acting, flying from here to there. And, you know, just, you know, she's 96 and she's sharp as a whip. 
and she's acting. Iris Apfel. Oh, she's amazing, isn't she? She's tweeting and she's like doing her thing and she's got her whole eyeglass line and I love her. I, I absolutely love her. And so I'm looking forward and I'm looking at these women, you know, Jane Fonda. Just constantly getting arrested. She's great. Jane Fonda looks, I mean, she looks great, you know, and she is out there sometimes and she's doing her activism and she'll be by herself doing it. She is who she is. She believes what she believes. And I like that. And so I'm encouraged by those people. And that helped me get out of my, is it too late for me to make a difference? You know? No, it's definitely not too late. I mean, we need to start our own over 50 list, I think. It's the, it's the only way. What do your 53-year-old dreams look like? You know, my 53-year-old dreams are, I want to finish writing my books. I have a stack of ideas. I want to write my books one after the other. I would love to meet an interesting gentleman, and that's not happening during COVID. No, no, not much is happening during COVID. That's not happening during COVID, but that's okay, because I'm taking this time as a chrysalis. So that's not happening during COVID, but I also like to podcast and um, I love doing voiceover. And so I would love to do that. And I moved at the age of 19 to Los Angeles to be an actress and I never did. So I might need to do that. There's plenty of time. I might need to do that. You do what you do until you drop. That's what I would like to do. But mainly, I just want to read. I like reading good books. And there's so much good stuff on television. I love watching some of this wonderful stuff that's being shown. And I really enjoy uh, my friends as we get older together. So what's your emotional age? Some days I feel like it's 90. (laughs) (laughs) Most days I feel like it's 15. (laughs) Brilliant. Give us a book recommendation. What's a book that you would push on a friend or that you recommend a lot? Oh, Aftershocks by Nadia Owusu. Tell us a little bit about that. It's a memoir. It's by Nadia Owusu, who is part Ghanaian, part Armenian, and grew up all over the world. Basically, it's about the trauma of living and moving and having to reinvent yourself and being betwixt and between and having to, you know, identify yourself. And all of us, regardless of race, ethnicity, we all fall betwixt and between, and we all feel the trauma of life's changes, and we all feel feel the need to identify ourselves. So, and the writing is spectacular. Sounds really good. What advice would you give younger women? Slow down. You're not racing to your grave. Just slow down. You know, you don't have to do everything today. You don't have to do everything tomorrow. And then also love the people who love you. We spend so much time chasing after things and people that don't appreciate us, don't want us for whatever validation. Love the people who love you and create a good, happy life with those people. Um, What's your superpower? Vulnerability. Vulnerability on a page. And lastly, how many fucks do you give? Oh, absolutely zero. When it comes to my daughter, I got a few. When it comes to anything else, absolutely zero. I can't muster it. (laughs) (laughs) 
I just can't, you know, I can't even pretend it's like, I want to. And that's the thing. That's the difference. I know that there are people who are trying to get to the zero fucks. And for me, like, I woke up one day and I was like, yeah, no. Like, I have zero fucks to give. There's a part of me that wants to, that wants to care, that wants to, you know, but it's just, I just don't. Right now, you know, my struggle right now is just to feel good. And I don't mean that like the pleasure principle. I mean, in my body and to feel centered. And I feel like this is my time. And so whenever there's an intrusion on that, I just feel like, whoa, what, you know? So, yeah. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for giving me so much of your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for doing this. This is so necessary. And it's so great to listen to women talk about just being. I absolutely love doing it. But I'm really glad you like the podcast and you found them helpful. Oh, I do. I tell everybody about it. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear your feedback. You can reach me on Twitter at Sam Baker and Instagram at the other Sam Baker using the hashtag The Shift. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate and subscribe because it really does help other people find us. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.